Hello, everybody, and welcome in to No Middle Madness, a podcast about Texas Tech basketball. I'm Ryan Mainville, joined by always uh, by Emery Lida. Today, we're going to recap the Oklahoma game where Tech got a big win. Then we're going to preview the Kansas State game where Tech should walk away victorious. Um, but like I said, I'm joined here by Emery. Emery, how are you today? Doing well, Ryan. I'm um, looking forward to talking about some of the stuff that went on in the Oklahoma game. It was a nice win, another Q1 win. Uh, went over a top 10 team in Lubbock is always nice. 10th win over a top 10 team in the Chris Beard era. Um, I'm looking forward to previewing Kansas State as much of a kind of questionable is it really that good of a game. Um, but it's always nice to be talking basketball. I'm ready to get going on this one. Yeah, it's good to have games on the schedule, and they definitely have a lot of them coming up. Um, but like you said, we're going to recap that top 10 win over Oklahoma. So Tech walked away victorious in a 57-52 to game against the Sooners. A lot of defense, not what I was expecting, uh, but maybe a little bit more predictable as OU was without their leading scorer, assist man, and rebounder in Austin Reeves, also Alondis Williams. Uh, but both teams shot 33% from the field. Tech was 17 of 51, while Oklahoma was 18 of 54. So Tech got the win despite making less field goals, which may sound strange, but it makes a little bit more sense when you realize that Tech throws in the game and made 18 of them. Emory, I'm interested to hear what your key takeaways are from this big win. Yeah, I think the biggest key for Tech in this game, I thought they did a really good job of, was keeping... Davion Harmon in check because at the end of the day without Reeves Harmon is really the guy that Oklahoma looks to to be able to create a lot of their initiation and offense I think he went 0 of 6 from the three-point line which he's not the greatest shooter but he's still definitely a threat and after what happened over the weekend and allowing Javante Smart to score I believe it was 29 points so something like some four threes uh, it was really a really important to kind of get back going in terms of being able to shut down a primary ball handler. I thought they did a great job on Harmon, and in general, the defense in this game was spectacular. Um, and on Oklahoma's end, they held Mac McClung without a field goal, which is a very rare feat, and I think it says a lot about Tech that they were able to win this type of game without McClung necessarily having the best offensive game. And I think it says a lot about Oklahoma that they were able to keep it close without a guy like Austin Reeves, who, I mean, really does kind of a little bit of everything for them. I mean, he's, at the end of the day, the man that makes them go. So I definitely think Reeves being out played a big portion. But as a whole, I was impressed with how Tech was able to have guys like Clarence Nadolny, who played 15 minutes again. Someone like Terrence Shannon, who really came on in the second half. And then... Kevin McCuller, who did a little bit of everything in that game. Those are the guys that I think really kind of carried the torch for Tech in this one. I think it bodes well because, like, we can – Tech can win games with McClung going for 25 or 30 on 50-40-90 splits, but this really kind of shows how much more there is to this team than just the Mac McClungs and the TJ Shannons of the world. I, I think it's something for te that Tech can really kind of build off of in terms of just having a great team win and getting back to playing Texas Tech defense, which is always a nice thing. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned without Reeves. Um, they were without Reeves against Alabama uh, when Alabama was ranked number nine, and Oklahoma still walked away victorious in that one. But, I mean, this was a red-hot Sooners team that had beaten three straight top ten teams, four in the month of January, 
they're a good team, even shorthanded. And I mean, like you said, they played some great defense on Mac McClung. A lot of that was Elijah Harkless, I believe, who drew the assignment on him. Um, and I think it says a lot that he played 38 minutes in this game, despite only having seven points. Um, he played some great defense on Mac McClung. We're going to get into Mac McClung a little bit later, but for now, let's go ahead and just keep talking about that defense. Um, in this game, I think Tech addressed one of their main concerns on the season, which is perimeter defense. And in this game, they held the Sooners, who are a pretty good shooting team, uh, to just six of 22 from downtown percent. Uh, the Sooners had shot above 35% from three and four out of their last five games before coming to Lubbock. Um, so obviously the three-point shot was a big part of the run that they were on. Um, and Emery, I'm curious, do you think that the defensive performance from Tech in this game was more about OU being without Reeves and not only his shooting, but his creation? Or do you think that Tech is just simply playing better perimeter defense right now? It's worth noting that Reeves is not necessarily the greatest three-point shooter on his own. Um, I do think his self-creation skill does a ton for the team in terms of generating open looks. And as Fran Priscilla mentioned on the broadcast, one of the key things that kind of helped OU's offense come alive more this year was putting Reeves more on ball. But when you look at the stats, he's only a 24% three-point shooter. So in that sense, it really wasn't a huge loss in terms of the raw numbers you would think. But then, I mean, obviously, we've seen with Tech where you have Jarrett Culver in play back in the 2019 team. And even though he didn't have a good year shooting the ball, he saw a huge impact on how Tech was able to shoot the ball um, throughout conference play and kind of getting that offense going. And I think not having Reeves play is a pretty big factor. But I would also say, like, Alabama came into that game red hot and then came right off of it and dismantled a good LSU team that we saw. I think in general, it speaks to how well Tech was able to kind of go from an emotional high against LSU, where you kind of really had to clamp down on the stretch, go on that 12-0 run to win, and come back on a big Monday in a game where a lot of times we've seen the Saturday to Monday type of transitions, you'll see more sloppy games. And while I think, yes, the offense in this game maybe was a little bit questionable on both ends, certainly on OU's and not having Reeves' played a part in terms of their ability to facilitate only had three assists on the entire night. But, I mean, I think for Tech, they really, it wasn't like they were giving up unnecessary buckets or easy looks. Like you look back at that game and OU really didn't score a lot less than you would anticipate. And I think um, while the deep, well, yes, the defense was certainly helped out by the fact that Reeves wasn't in the game. You still have guys that are really dangerous on the OU squad. You have like, Damian Harmon, like I mentioned, you have Brady Manick. Those are guys that, regardless of if Reeves is out there, they're going to be able to get points. And so to be able to hold them to inefficient lines and really kind of limit their impact is something that Tech can be proud of. And I think it's something to build off going forward. Yeah, you mentioned Manick. This was probably the first game that he's really looked like himself uh, since he was diagnosed with COVID-19. He scored 11 points in this game. But like you mentioned, they still have plenty of weapons. Uh, one you didn't mention was Emoja Gibson, the UNT transfer. He shoots four season at a pretty high clip. So he's a threat too. I think Tech played pretty well in this game, uh, just not missing rotations, which has kind of been an issue for them at times this season where they'll just totally space out at times and somebody will free themselves up in the corner. Um, but I mean, anytime you hold an offense that's as good as OU's to six made three pointers, I think you're in pretty good shape. 
And obviously, one of the centerpieces of that Texas Tech defense is Terrence Shannon Jr., who does have NBA-ready defense. Um, But also in this game, he scored 15 points, all of those coming in the second half. It was a huge part of Tech's victory. Looking at one-game efficiencies in terms of offensive and defensive ratings, it can kind of be small sample size theater. We should never treat these numbers like they're cornerstones or that they're, you know, we should base all of our uh, analysis on these. But, I mean, Shannon did have the highest offensive rating in the game and also the second lowest defensive rating amongst. I mean, obviously, this is now like the sixth or seventh game, probably more than that, actually, where he's come off the bench. Um, And Chris Beard says it all the time. We have six or seven starters. It doesn't matter who starts or comes off the bench. He's also mentioned that the six-man role is a huge part of his teams, um, as he's shown with guys like Brandon Francis. Emery, I'm just curious, how much do you think that Shannon coming off the bench, how much of an impact do you think that's had on this Texas Tech team? I think from an actual pure basketball standpoint, the impact isn't that much. Um, I mean, certainly the one thing it does do is after the first couple of minutes when you play with your starting five, it opens up a little bit more substitution freedom and allowing Shin to be that first person off the bench. And you can kind of get a feel for the game real early on if you want to go small ball or kind of stick with someone like Santos Silva. Uh, And also it allows... Micah Peavy, and I think this is kind of the bigger bigger point I want to get at, is I think the biggest thing that having Shannon come off the bench does is it allows Peavy to kind of get a chance to play with guys that really kind of maximize his ability. You have self-creators offensively with Kyler Edwards, Mac McClung, Kevin McCuller, and then you've got kind of the spacing where he doesn't necessarily have to worry so much about having a huge, like, having a huge offensive output. And he doesn't, he can sort of afford to kind of play his sort of game, play more scrappy. And I think that's kind of the biggest thing because without it, you're kind of looking, you get into the flow of the game and it's suddenly like, where can you fit PV in where it kind of maximizes his output, maximizing his opportunity. And I think it also, in general, the lineup flexibility it has, it means that you can pretty much run Shannon off the bench with a guy like Tyreek Smith or like Jamarius Burton. And you're suddenly like it just kind of allows for that little bit of flexibility and then I think kind of the psychological aspect of it as well someone like Shannon's proven that he can come off the bench and understand the importance of that role it's not like he's not getting minutes he's still in the top three on the team for minutes played in conference and pretty much all of those have been coming off the bench and so I think in general like it's just been a great move in terms of allowing PV to kind of have that opportunity to be sort of with some guys that maximize the skill set while also sort of allowing for more lineup flexibility and keeping everyone kind of on the same page. That's a really interesting point. I I never really thought of it that way. I mean, obviously, the most logical conclusion uh, to make is that if Shannon was in the starting five, you would bump PV out of there and then slide McCuller to the four um, because he's proven that he can play in that uh, quote-unquote big man role. Um, that's an interesting point because when you put PV on the bench with some rotations with Burton, who usually has another primary ball handler on the court with him as well. Um, so that's an interesting point you make about the rotations. And I agree. I mean, PV hasn't been scoring at the highest clip this season. He's only averaging 5.5 points per game. Um, a lot of those are on spin moves, getting to the basket. Um, but 
I do like the fact that he's out there with the starters. Um, he is a lot of energy, a very high motor. Kind of reminds me of freshman Clarence Nandolny just by the way that he kind of gets into foul trouble at times with that motor and can cause some turnovers. But yeah, I like that. And I like, um, obviously, this role for Shannon. Um, I don't know how much of an impact it makes, like you said. Um, but I do know that Texas Tech is winning games and that Shannon's had some really good games coming off the bench, including this one and the one before that against LSU, where he had a double-double. Um, and speaking of starters, I mean, we touched on this before, uh, but Mac McClung scores in single digits. He doesn't game. But Tech still manages to win the game. Emery, I don't know if you were watching after the game. I had the TV on while I was finishing up my recap. And Chris Beard hopped onto the late night sports center with Scott Van Pelt. And he was talking about during the game, he went up to Mac McClung with a few minutes left in the game. And he said, hey, man, when are you going to get me a bucket? And McClung just said, hey, coach, when are you going to get me a free throw? That's kind of what happened towards uh, the end of the stretch was we saw McClung get to the line and make some big free throws. Um, and I mean, a couple of games ago where he dropped 30 on West Virginia, you and I were sitting here and we were talking, hey, is letting him take 20 shots a game a bad a bad route to success? You know, can that work? Can he be a high usage player? And now he goes 0 for 7 from the field, but Tech still proves that they can win big games. Do you think that this, obviously it isn't their strategy for McClung to not be scoring, um, but do you think that if, continues to struggle that tech can still pull out big wins or do you think this was an outlier and if he has another night like this and they're in big trouble i mean i certainly don't think it's ideal uh you're not gonna win many games with mac mcclung not hitting a field goal it's so like i said earlier i think tech has a lot of complementary pieces outside of mcclung that sometimes maybe go a little bit underappreciated i mean kevin mcculler is either tied for the most assists or had the most assists on the team in the last three games. And that's something that I think gets under or gets overlooked quite a bit um, when it comes to just how tech has been able to operate is McCuller turning into more of a ball handler. Um, and you look at kind of his assist rate, it's jumped out, jumped up dramatically. And during conference play, I believe he has the second highest, maybe even the highest on the team over the course of the last few games. And that's just something like McClung taking a lot of shots is really kind of been the MO during conference. I don't think it's a bad idea. I mentioned it last week. I mean, you have a middle ground where you can say the odds that Mac is able to shoot 50, 40, 90 splits for the rest of the season are slim to none, but you can still be a good productive offense with him taking a high amount of shots because he's proven that he can sustain kind of a pretty decent clip where he's still an efficient player, even with that high amount of shots. I think, I mean, the other thing with with Monday night is that being able to score six points without making a single field goal and having that kind of mindset adjustment of get to the free throw line instead of continue chucking perimeter jumpers, that really shows kind of a maturity within the player and within the system. So I don't think that it's a good thing per se for Tech to have McClung not hit a single field goal. And I certainly think you're going to lose more times than not when that happens. But I do think that this team is not necessarily built to be stuck with just a heliocentric Mac McClung style offense. You've got guys that can get you points. You've got Kyler Edwards, who still, regardless of how he's played the last few games, has still shown in his career that he can drop 
15 to 20 as a primary ball handler. You've got TJ Shannon that's put up 20 points a number of times in conference play now. And as I said earlier, you have a guy like Kevin McCuller who can really kind of pick up some of the slack as a ball handler. So I think there's a lot to like about this team and the makeup. And even though McClung maybe isn't going to keep up the rapid pace that he had prior to the Oklahoma game, it's still something where I feel comfortable with him taking that amount of shots. Yeah, you kind of reiterated a sentiment that Chris Beard shared in the post game, which is always a good sign that you have a good take. Uh, Beard said, you know, obviously it's not our plan for a single shot on the game, but we're not one guy. Our team is not one guy. We adjust and we adapt and we find ways to score in other places. And so I agree with you. I mean, obviously McClung has provided essentially, uh, I don't like using the word single-handedly, but he's made some big shots to win them some games uh, this season, and he's proven that he can do that. Um, But Tech, you know, they've got to find scoring in other places when he doesn't show up, and they did that in this game. And I liked how you mentioned Kyler Edwards. I think he's a guy who's just continued to get a lot and a lot of uh, criticism, I guess is the word, uh, for his scoring production this season, only averaging 9.6 points per game. I know a lot of people had high expectations for him this season, um, but he does a lot for your team even when he's not scoring. Emery wrote a really good article on VivaTheMatadors.com about Kyler Edwards. You all should go read it. It's very good. Um, but, I mean, yeah, like you said, Kevin McCuller, if I'm not mistaken. So if that can continue to be a weapon for him, that's big. Yeah, he did make two threes more than anybody else on the team, which is kind of crazy, not what I was expecting. Um, but McCuller's offense looks looks better. Shannon can't miss around the rim despite getting like bulldozed on some of these layups. Um, you got a lot of pieces. Marcus Santos Silva is showing that he can make some sky hooks now. That's pretty cool. Um, but like you said, there's pieces in other places, and that's how you win. Uh, most of the time, successful college basketball programs are not built around one guy. So that's a good sign. And I mean, if you want to talk about winning games, then you look ahead to the next game on your schedule, and you've got Kansas State. So the Kansas State Wildcats are 5-14 and 14 on their season. They are 1-9 and nine in conference with their only win coming against Iowa State, who is dead last in the conference. They are 0-7 in Big 12 play uh, right now. Kansas State, towards the beginning of the season, looked like arguably the worst team in Division I basketball. They had lost a couple of games to... D3 opponents, uh, I believe a game to Our Lady of the Lake, which is a very cool name for a university, but they are not a good college basketball team. Um, and then they kind of looked like they were improving. They played Tech pretty close in the game. Lubbock, and, you know, it looked like they had maybe found something, um, but then it just kind of all fell apart. You kind of expected to them for them to be in the bottom three of the Big 12 along with TCU and Iowa State, and right now they're showing that because they're on a nine-game losing streak. During this stretch, they have only scored 57.8 points per game while shooting only 38.8% from the field. Meanwhile, their opponents are scoring 77.2 points per game. Emory, this team is bad. There's really no other way to put it. They got beat by like 50 by Baylor, lost by like 30 to Kansas, even though they, they played pretty Say I watched a little bit of that game. They played tight, but I mean, they just don't really have the talent to win these games. I guess if you could pinpoint an issue with their team, where would you say the majority of their issues are coming from? 
I mean, I think at the end of the day, you just have to look at who's on their roster, to be honest. And I, I mean, I guess the two best players on the roster are Nigel Pack and Mike McGurl. And Nigel Pack is a really good freshman, in my opinion. He averages 11.7 points per game, averaging 39.5% shooting on three and a half, or 5.7, three-point attempts per game. Um, and McGurl is kind of a less efficient, averaging about 11 and a half, but he's only shooting... 36% from the field, 33% from three. Those two guys in general, I mean, they're good complementary pieces. You would like them to be on your team, per se, like, especially Nigel Pack. I'm high on what I think he can produce. I think to throw a little bit of a Dallas Mavericks comparison here, he reminds me a lot of kind of what Tyrell Terry's skill set was in his freshman year, maybe a little bit more on the roll and defensively, but kind of the point stands. Um, but those aren't guys that you can really trust to lead a Big 12 program. I mean, when your best player is a six-foot freshman that probably plays better off the ball, it's a little bit of an issue. And I think going down the line, you just look down the roster. McGraw is a senior that kind of still is a very kind of mistake-prone player, only having a true shooting percentage of 46.1. And he's not necessarily the greatest defensively as well. You've got guys like Antonio and Dewan Gordon, who have kind of been young, inexperienced, still making kind of freshman-style mistakes. And then you've got guys in the rotation, and Davion Bradford, who's a seven-footer, which is kind of a rarity in the Big 12 these days that gets serious minutes for them. And he's a true freshman, as a Selim Miguel. And both of those guys might have a great future ahead of them, but they're still really flawed players for the rotation. And I think a lot of it with Kansas State is they had the roster turnover after the 2019 season, and they really haven't been able to find an identity ever since then. You had someone like Cartier Jara who left after last year after having a feud with this coach. You had a couple of transfer couple of transfers that didn't pan out last year you had guys like Xavier Sneed that just didn't quite provide the leadership necessarily that people were looking for and so suddenly you look at a roster and it's just like where do you find the leadership or the talent to compete at the big 12 level and I mean I think you have to put some of that on Bruce Weber and I've kind of let it let it play out in terms of I'm not one to really point fingers per se to the coach, but I do think that's something that Kansas State's going to have to reflect on because it's not like they're underachieving their talent. They just don't have a Big 12 roster, to put it bluntly. Yeah, you mentioned Cartier Jara. I'm sure Texas Tech fans have no problem remembering last year when he tried a windmill dunk uh, on a breakaway and he missed which led to a Davi Dave Moretti pull-up three. I have never heard the USA that loud before. It was crazy in there when that happened. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was kind of clear that Jara wasn't the best fit for the program, uh, whether that be his fault or Weber's. I don't know. I'm not picking, pointing fingers, per se. Um, but, I mean, I saw a quote from Kansas State's AD this past week where they said they were sticking with Bruce Weber as their coach going forward. I mean, okay, that's fine with me. They're, Kansas State is typically a good defensive team um, at all, um, but that could be due to roster construction. I know that one of Chris Beard's favorite things to say this season is that he has 10 to 12 Big 12 players. Maybe he says he has all of his players on his roster that are Big 12 players. Um, I, I don't see very many 
Big 12 players on this Kansas State roster. I think Nigel Pack is definitely one, depending on his placement. I like that Tyrell Terry comp because um, Terry was asked to have the ball in his hands a lot. Meanwhile, he was a 50% catch-and-shoot three-point shooter. Um, and then McGurl, you know, he he's developed a little bit throughout his years, um, but like you said, just kind of struggles uh, with his efficiencies. He's just shooting 36%, and he's turning the ball over almost three times a game. So, I mean, you know, their roster – it, it really comes down to they are not a good team because they can't score and they can't defend. They are 311th in the country in three-point percentage because they're shooting at a percent. Meanwhile, their opponents are shooting at 38.4%, which is the 330th best perimeter defense in the nation. Um, and Kansas State is only scoring 62.4 points per game which is the 333rd worst in the nation. Um, so, I mean, you're just not going to win games when you can't score and when you can't defend it. It's really that simple. Um, there's not much more analysis to go into it other than that. Uh, Texas Tech should be able to walk out with a pretty comfortable win. We can go ahead and get into our predictions here. I'm going to go Texas Tech 76, Kansas State 54. I could see Tech winning this game by at least 30. Um, I'll just err on the conservative side of things. I think my hot take will be that we'll see some Vlad Golden minutes for the first time in a few months, I think, now. Um, but... I think hopefully you can build a pretty big lead, check in your reserves, and keep the guys' legs fresh for the remainder of the schedule. I like that prediction. I like Vlad Golden getting some minutes. Um, I think I'm going to go with a little bit of a low-scoring game to counteract what I thought last week. Um, I think I'll take Tech 68-50. to 50. Um I think the key is I just don't see a whole lot of offensive firepower on this Kansas State roster. Like, I know that they scored 71 on Tech and Lubbock, but I felt like that was kind of a little bit of a messier game than usual. I mean, you certainly, like, you look at it, and you had Kansas State making 19 of 31 shots inside the two-point arc, and you also – Kansas State's free throws that they allowed Tech to take in that game in terms of just fouling so much created a more up-and-down game, and I don't know if that's going to happen again this time. Um, I do think in general when these two teams meet, it's generally a lower-scoring game. Um, coming to mind is the 2019 game was 59-45 to 45 in Manhattan, and the 2018 game was like 66-46. to 46. So you, you have a history of those low-scoring games. I feel like it's going to kind of go along with that. But I feel like it's going to be probably a little bit more of a blowout than the final score that I said would indicate because I think you're going to have quite a bit of offensive output from someone like Kyler Edwards or from Terrence Shannon just because of the nature of Kansas State's personnel deficiencies. And that you can, you can oftentimes put your best couple of guys and they'll do a passable job on the best players for Tech, for instance. But I think down the stretch that someone like Kyler or someone like Terrence Shannon is going to have a big game. And then defensively, I think Tech is locked in after that OU game and the second half of the LSU game. I just can't see K-State being able to hang with Tech. And I'm, I mean, I do like a few of the pieces on that roster. 
I anticipate Nigel Pack will have another pretty good game against Tech because he did last time. And I think he's the type of player that at times Tech can struggle with kind of guys that are so lethal off the ball. And even though he has to run a lot of the primary and primary initiation offensively, I still think he's got he's got that opportunity to play a lot off ball. Um, but yeah, I think Tech is going to win 68 to 50. And I also think I'll take a little bit of a bold take and say Kyler Edwards leads the team in scoring. And I think the what I'm going to root that in is that traditionally against teams that are poor in conference, Edwards plays pretty well. Last time in Manhattan, he led the team in scoring and then again led the team in scoring last year against Iowa State, which gave him Big 12 Player of the Week. I think he puts up 18 points. A Kyler Edwards uh, high-scoring game, rather, will be definitely – uh, significant for not only this Texas Tech team, but him um, and his confidence. I think that would be really, really good for him. Um, I like the conservative take. I don't think that's crazy, especially considering that we may see some end of bench guys getting some run for Tech. Um, and I think that will be to preserve legs. So we just want to talk a little bit about the end of Tech's schedule because uh, right now, it is tough. So as it stands, after Saturday's game against Kansas State, which you should win with ease, you have seven games remaining, and it is just a bloodbath. It is West Virginia uh, at home. Then you go to Waco and you play Baylor. You play TCU back-to-back. You go on the road to face Kansas, and then you're still on the road to face Oklahoma State play Texas. That Iowa State game I don't know what's happening with that. It still hasn't been rescheduled. I think it may get placed in that 10-day window in between the Texas game and the beginning of the Big 12 tournament. I do not know that to be a fact or to be a rumor. I just am speculating that that's where it'll get placed. Maybe it'll get moved somewhere in between the Oklahoma State and Texas game because that Oklahoma State game just got moved up to Monday. Um, But this end of... This schedule, this stretch is just a bloodbath. I mean, Bart Torvik has Tech favored and all of them, except for Baylor on the road, in which Tech is a 10-point dog right now, which I thought was just crazy. Um, but, I mean, they're favorites in all of them. They're only 0.3 favorite against Kansas and a 0.9 favorite against Oklahoma, or Oklahoma State. Uh, obviously, those wouldn't be lines that we see in Vegas. Uh, this is just analytics. But, I mean, it's a really tough end of your schedule. You might still have some bad memories from last season where you went two and five down your final seven games and you really got put essentially on the bubble uh, to be an NCAA tournament team. I mean, just looking at this end of the schedule, Emery, what are your thoughts? Uh, How do you think they'll fare in these final games? And I mean, do you have any overarching takes? I think... The key here is Tech needs to win two games in particular. They have to win against Kansas State, and they have to win at home against TCU. If they get those two done, then really I think a lot of what happens down the stretch for Tech could be justified however it ends up. Because at the end of the day, I mean, you're given an absolute brutal deck of cards here. You're playing five games in 10 days, which is frankly unheard of in Big 12 play. I mean, I cannot ever remember seeing a time where that happened, and especially playing three day, three games in one week. I'll have to go back and do some research on this, but I'm pretty sure that hasn't happened for Tech within the conference season since back in the 
own back about 25 years ago prior to the Big 12. So I think in general, having that much, that many games on the schedule, it's hard to really say how that's going to impact the team. Um, I do think in theory, the only two games I would say I'm really worried about from a tech perspective is the road game at Baylor and the road game at Oklahoma State. Because I think you look at a game like Kansas and a game like West Virginia are two games where you're clearly kind of the hotter team at the moment. And those are both teams where you know you can go toe-to-toe with them. In Kansas's case, you've learned a lot about your team since that first game, and I'm not sure that they really have. And you've got Kevin McCullough back, which is another big thing. And then on the West Virginia side of things, you know that it was really kind of an outlier game on both ends offensively. So you're kind of playing a different style game in this one. So I would say if Tech ends the season, say with wins against Kansas State, sweeping TCU, and then maybe they win, they split the games against West Virginia, Kansas, Baylor, Oklahoma State, and Texas. I think that will be a resounding statement on the season because the fact of the matter is, like, there's no games off, really, after this Kansas State game because you've got West Virginia at home and then you've got the two TCU games. And outside of that, everything is going to be something where you're, like, either heavy underdogs to Baylor or right on the line of being favored or underdogs. I mean, at the end of the day, like, this is going to be a tough stretch. I'm not sure how they're going to fare because I don't know how the rest is going to impact them. But I think you're going to learn a lot about the team, even though I'd say if you just take care of us on the games that you're heavily favored in, so against TCU and Kansas State, you'll be fine from NCAA tournament perspective. But you always want to be able to get in that top three or four in the Big 12. Yeah, and I think as you look at these final eight games, I think that finishing 500 in these is probably a win for Tech. So, I mean... Hopefully you get that win over Kansas State, if not the world might burn down. And then you sweep TCU, and then you beat either Kansas or Oklahoma State. I feel like both of those games are winnable for Tech, Um, at least more winnable than Texas, West Virginia, and Baylor will be. And I think you're in pretty good shape. I mean, I think this Texas Tech team is going to be an NCAA tournament team. I, I mean, it would be pretty difficult for them to fall out of that contention now. They would probably have to go like two and six down the stretch or something. Um, but I mean, it all depends on seating now. Obviously, you want a higher seating so you can uh, have some easier competition to begin the tournament. Um, but I mean, yeah, I think 500. Uh, so you split these eight games. I think that might cause the fan base to burn down. Um, it seems like a very reactionary season, which I guess is every season, but it feels a little bit different than this season. But I think 500 would be definitely a win for Tech. And I, I do think that... That that Kansas and that Oklahoma State that 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 two games in two days or three days rather um, that's that's a big big stretch. I think that might be the most important block on the schedule because I mean you play West Virginia and Baylor in four days, um, but those are both really tough games. I mean you could walk out of there with back to back losses and your season wouldn't be over because those are good teams, especially Baylor. But, I mean, that Kansas and Oklahoma State game, you really want to split those, I think. And, I mean, getting two wins in that stretch would be huge. How it fares out, obviously, Texas Tech, they've got to focus on one game at a time. 
as Chris Beard would say, that's why Emery and I are not coaches and why we have a podcast, because we do not, and we do not have to lead a team, thank God, because that sounds exhausting. Um, but eight more games left on the schedule, beginning with Kansas State on Saturday. I believe that game's at three or one. It's at one of those times on ESPN+. Plus. It's the final ESPN Plus game of the year. If you are looking to cancel your subscription and save some money, I know some people have been asking me about that. Um, but they've got to close that one out before they enter this brutal stretch. Emery, do you have any final thoughts to say before we wrap this up? I'm going to go ahead and question everyone on what Ryan just said because the road game against TCU was a game that was initially scheduled to be on ESPN+. And as far as I know, they have not announced what TV network that would be on. So it would not surprise me if all, if we had to play one more game on ESPN+. Just kind of play a little bit of caution is all I got to say. And, I mean, ultimately, I mean, we've talked kind of down a little bit on Kansas State. But, I mean, they're still a Big 12 team at the end of the day. So, Texas Tech, it's important for Tech to come out ready to play this Saturday because anything can happen. Um, just staying focused is going to be important. And I look forward to seeing how Tech can handle the, stre- the stretch run of the season because at the end of the day, I mean, this is something that's going to be unprecedented. You're not going to see years where you're having to play – three games in one week or five five games in 10 days. So just kind of take it game by game, and hopefully we can continue racking up some pretty solid wins. Yeah, and you're, you're absolutely right. I don't know why it slipped my mind, but the TCU game in Fort Worth is on ESPN+. Plus. I'm sorry for me. You should all keep ESPN+, Plus anyways, so you can watch Lady Raiders and Vivian Gray, who is an exceptional basketball player. Uh, So we'll be back sometime next week. Uh, It'll be after that Kansas State game and after the West Virginia game. So we'll probably look back on West Virginia, assuming that there's nothing interesting to note on Kansas State, and then look ahead to Baylor. That's a big stretch for Texas Tech, and we'll be sure to keep you updated on everything that's happening. So thank you for listening. Again, just if you could subscribe wherever you listen, leave a review if possible. It does help us out a lot. Thank you for all your support so far this season, and we'll be back in a week. Thank you, and have a good day.